welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Welcome to this meeting of Sexholics Anonymous. My name is David from Portland, Oregon, and I will be your facilitator along with... ...from Pico, Texas. The name of this meeting, this session is... We're meeting both here in uh, this ballroom section in uh, San Antonio, Texas, and also we're being streamed live on the Internet. And I was asked to remind those of you who are listening on the Internet that you're welcome to submit questions over the Internet, and we will respond to those when we get to that portion of this share. Please take a moment to silence all electronic devices. If you need to use one during the meeting, please take it outside. We ask that you not make any personal recording of this or any meeting. Please join in a moment of silence. Follow, oh, you're so good to me. Followed by the serenity prayer. Serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Thy will not mine be done. In the spirit of carrying the essay message, this meeting is being broadcast live and this meeting is also being recorded. If you're not sure your share will be appropriate or on the topic, please participate by listening. The broadcast and recording equipment will not be turned off for any reason. If you wish to share, please speak directly into the microphone, and that would be this one that I'm pointing to, so the listener can follow you. If you do not wish to be recorded, we invite you to participate by listening or attending another session. Please do not touch any of the recording equipment um, Justin and I will I will share a, a bit on family afterwards. Justin will share uh, more, and then I'll probably add a little bit. At that point, we'll open it up to questions. And the people doing the streaming have told us it works really well. If you'll come up, if you have a question, that'd be great. Uh, if you'll come up and sit in the middle chair, and we'll put the mic where you can share your question, and then we'll respond to it. So if you think you're going to want to ask a question, when we get close to that time, start coming up and and as soon as someone's up here, if you also have a question, just get ready to come up so we have as minimum transition time as, as possible. Um, I guess that's all the, the basic kind of stuff. The uh, materials they sent out for um, us to think about in the family afterward included this uh, quotation, well, a quotation from page 122. Um, in Portland, we have an AA group that's called the Family Afterward. And, uh, and that's a group of, for couples, uh, support group. And, and this uh, whole chapter, chapter nine, it's called the chapter nine group. And chapter nine is titled The Family Afterwards. I'd like to read the first two paragraphs of that, and then Justin's gonna share uh, a story. A story. Our women folk have suggested certain attitudes a wife may take with the husband who is recovering. Perhaps they created the impression that he is to be wrapped in cotton wool and placed on a pedestal. Successful readjustment means the opposite. 
All members of the family should meet upon the common ground of tolerance, understanding, and love. This involves a process of deflection. The alcoholic, his wife, his children, his in-laws, each one is likely to have fixed ideas about the family's attitude toward himself or herself. Each is interested in having his or her wishes respected. We find that the more one member of the family demands that the other concede to him, the more resentful they become. This makes for discord and unhappiness. And why? Is it not because each wants to play the lead? Is not each trying to arrange the family show to his liking? Is he not unconsciously trying to see what he can take from the family life rather than give? I find the A, a big book, uh, to be so powerful in large part because it's so descriptive of what it is we experience. I'm a sexaholic, but the same identity. And, and what is the solution? What actually works in terms of a different outcome? And that's at least in part the topic of this session and the family, family afterward. Excuse me. Um, again, I'm Justin R. I was just going to share a little bit about my experience uh, on this topic. I think in some ways um, I'm a little bit of an outlier in that, um, first of all, I got into SA in my late 20s. Uh, which I was living in Atlanta at the time, Atlanta, Georgia, when I got sober and got into recovery. Uh, and at least with respect to that specific group, I was pretty young comparatively. I was not married, um, had a serious girlfriend at the time, that, and she was wonderful, kind, gentle, very loving, Beautiful. Uh, I called her a Valkyrie. Um, she was just this angelic person, and I could not love her. I could not treat her well. I routinely made her cry. Um, she routinely, in my mind, failed to meet my most basic self-evident emotional needs. Uh, I routinely fantasized and acted out about her best friend, and she kind of picked up on that somehow that I was lusting after her best friend the entire time we were dating. Um, and it was in that kind of context that the first thing that became apparent to me was that I was a love cripple. Yes, I, w I was somebody who had acted out three to five times a day since years before puberty. I don't remember a time in my life before I fondled myself. I mean, years, years before puberty. Um, but it was the love cripple thing. Like, why can't I love human beings? What's going on here? That really drove me to the rooms, to, to SA in Atlanta. Um, and I'm, uh, I'll never be sufficiently grateful for that. But, um, the reason I say I might be a little bit of an outlier is that I got married in my mid thirties. So I had been sober for, six years or something, five or six years. And I got married to a girl nine years my younger. Is that how you say that? My my junior? My younger. What the heck? Um, yeah, thank you. Um, so, she, and she is a peppy optimist. And she, and she just thought, man, my husband is awesome. He conquered 
this sex addiction thing. He has been sober for six years. Guys call him to be mentored in their um, in their recovery process, et cetera. So um, we got married. I'm kind of drawing a caricature of her a bit, but that was basically the sort of state of our courtship and even early marriage, I'd say. Um, But where my disease really started showing itself was in the character defects that would just kick into overdrive when she, as wives and husbands, as we are wont to do to one another, when she kind of pressed in on areas where I'm particularly sensitive, I would blow up at her. So um, in the first year and a half of marriage, I raged at her probably five or six times. Uh, I, I punched a mirror and ripped it, her rearview mirror, um, out of her car. And that was, at that point I'd been sober, I think, seven years. It was on the way home from a marital counseling session. Where, uh, and somehow that marital counseling session, I had failed to convince her to manage our finances in the way that I think is capital T true. And she just wouldn't have it. And so, and I got so frustrated. I punched the mirror, ripped it off the, um, windshield, had to replace the windshield. I threw a glass with a Coke in it, I think. And, or something like that, yelled at her. One time, I mean, I screamed at her more violently and said every, all the varsity level cuss words um, that I could think of. Um, and thankfully, I did have enough, I guess, uh, resources through the program at that point to know I, I have got to get help for this. Um, and through my sponsor and a, another few friends, um, started really working on that rage stuff and surrendering it, but um, that did a different kind of damage. I mean, my wife doesn't have um, sad stories about catching me with other women or finding uh, inexplicable credit card charges for porn or prostitution. She doesn't have those stories, but she does have stories about what it's like to be married to a sexaholic in recovery. She really does. Uh, and she started our, probably two years into our marriage, really. She read the s book cover to cover, went to a bunch of s meetings. It was kind of like, yeah, you're a, you're a sex addict. I'm still, you know, you're in recovery. But, um, so uh, facing either imminent, uh, the imminent collapse of my marriage or something else, uh, we really plunged into the something else, uh, went back to marital counseling, took a ton of advice um, and suggestions from folks in the program and, and therapy. And uh, that's been our kind of motto in marriage. And now we have two kids. I have a two-month-old, which is my wi- why my wife could not come, um, and a three-year-old. And I will interject this real quickly, um, and I, I can't believe I can say this, but I really think this is true. Um, I can't believe what a good father I am. I can't believe that that's my life. I, I've been terrified uh, about the kind of parent I would be, and I can't, I'm so grateful 
to the program and to my higher power for that. Um, so, and that just scared the hell out of me for years and years before getting married. But um, I'm not not a perfect father at all. But um, we're workers, man. My wife and I work at this stuff. And we take, and when we have arguments, which we do, I mean, two months ago, right around the time our child was born, we were, she had a really hard pregnancy for a really long time. And I had about had it with that. She'd about had it. I mean, we were like, is this a mistake? Should I, should we separate for a while? We went back to, um, a marital counselor again. I went to a psychiatrist for the first time in probably 13 years or so. And this is in the last two months, right? So what we do, what we have is, is we're committed to work and to build and continue to build family on the bedrock of recovery, which means the steps for me are a reality. So I'm still powerless over lust. And my life still can teeter towards unmanageability, depending on my spiritual fitness or lack thereof, right? All that stuff is true. I still, those same character defects um, can reemerge at times. I've got some blame issues. I'm a blamer. Um, I, as I said, I've got some anger issues. Um, we, but we try and keep those juices flowing. Uh, the, keep doing the work, uh, not juices flowing, whatever expression I'm trying to think of. Um, keep things moving. Keep things moving. Uh, keep it green. And just kind of do the work, uh, as routinely as we can. And sure enough, we're married. We just had our nine year anniversary two weeks ago, um, which I'm grateful for. And she's really included in my program in, I think, a pretty helpful, healthy way. And what I mean by that is uh, I don't go over the gory details with her, um, but I do let her know how I'm doing. So, for instance, we've got our two-month-old. Uh, that means all of a sudden, out of nowhere, again... <laughs> Two in the morning feedings with a baby, rocking him to sleep, all radically changed schedule. And I'm a high school principal, so I've got a pretty stressful, high-intensity job. And what I found, again, recent, this is the last two months, uh, a, I've had to get rid of my Internet access at our house. Because even though it hasn't been a problem for a really long time for me, the sudden schedule shift to me doing the 2 a.m. feeding alone in a suburb in Waco, Texas, where we've only lived for a year and a half, still don't have a lot of friends, I can't have unfettered access to high-speed Internet, to Wi-Fi, alone at my house um, till 2 in the morning. I just can't. So that means I started seeing myself pushing my boundaries, calling people in the program, trying some different things after about... Four days of that, um, I just, I can't do this. I, so I, my wife's birthday present to me, she was going to make me a chocolate cake, was she changed the password on my computer because I'm a computer idiot. And she, I don't hide it from her. I just, again, not all the gory details of what I want to look at or what I, and I didn't go, I didn't go to a point of no return, but I started 
you know, I'd read something on the new, um, a news website about a movie coming up, click on the movie, start reading. I know that actress. The second I start pursuing someone that I find kind of attractive or something um, online, it's, I got to pull the ripcord pretty darn quickly, right? And so, um, because I really am powerless. So that's kind of what we do, is that she's not my accountability partner or certainly not a sponsor in any way, but uh, I try and be rigorously honest with her. If I am dying for a meeting, I'm like, honey, even if we've got to get a sitter, I've, I, I have to go to tonight's meeting. Um, I host meetings at my house. It's part of our life. Recovery is part of my life um, and my wife's life. And my three-year-old boy will uh, joke sometimes with my permission and my sponsee's permission uh, when I'm on the phone with them. And I'll say, you know, remind them not to act out. I'll say, don't act out. Just because I want that kind of like levity and normalcy to being a, a, a family that has sort of patterns and rituals that are recovery-centered. I just want it to be recovery, to be just kind of part of our life. Um, and so that we're prepared for the, the slings and arrows that are sure to come as well. So sorry if I'm rambling, but that's uh, my family afterwards experience. Thank you, Justin. And if the, on the Internet you can't hear it, that was applause. I'm David Sexaholic. My sobriety date's August 2nd, 1988, for which I can never be sufficiently grateful. Uh, after I finish speaking, I will read the um, paragraph here about participating and once again uh, invite you to, if you have a question, come up and sit in the center seat and um, and be prepared to come up That would so we have minimum transition. And then on the Internet, if you're listening, streaming, you have a question, please submit it and the... Uh, People who are monitoring the streaming will pass it on to us. My awareness, I came into SA because I really didn't want to lose another family. I'd already lost one, one set of kids, one pair of kids and one wife. And I didn't want to go through it again. And my wife was, had had it with my behavior quickly. And so the family afterward has always been part of what has kept me in SA and attracted me to SA. Um, and I was playing with my wedding ring here, and remember, um, I've lost my wedding ring periodically. Uh, the first one, I know exactly where it's in, the, in a nun's convent outside Marriott'sville, Maryland, uh, because it fell down a drain, and when we went to rescue it, it fell down between the walls of the nun's convent down below. So I guess I know where to go get it if I wanted to spend a lot of money. Um, and repair the repair the wall in the bathrooms there. Um, so I've had various wedding rings vanish, but when I got sober, I happened to be without a wedding ring, and I went on a trip. Uh, I think it was a family event of some sort, and I was going through the O'Hare Airport in Chicago, and and I went to a drugstore that was there, and they had a little uh, wedding ring for it was five bucks, I think. And um, and I wore it for quite a long period of time. It was very humbling. Uh, it had some kind of shiny plating on it that came off very rapidly. And and uh, but having that symbol, I, I used to hide my wedding ring. How unusual for a man to hide his wedding ring! 
Um, and um, and so having a wedding ring and wearing it and playing with it, which is what I do, um, was important to me. Uh, my wife got involved in Essendon fairly shortly after we uh, I came in, and um, when she sort of identified with her part in this disease, and has been very supportive of my being an SA, um, and ever all the way along. Having said that, not unlike what Justin was just sharing, um, four years into uh, sobriety and recovery and having gone through actually a major crisis with one of our children uh, dealing with drug situation, um, um, she really crashed. <laughs> and one day, a bunch of things had gone on, and I don't need to be any more detailed than that in, in this talk, but... but um, she got so angry with me that she walked out the front door of the house and got in the car. We were in Nashville, Tennessee, and she drove to Los Angeles. Um, and then she drove north into Oregon and stayed with a cousin there. And uh, she was pretty upset. Um, she was really upset. And um, and I, I, looking back on it now, I realized that she was humiliated and scared by a bunch of things that had been going on, and probably in both both intermixing there in either order. And it was just overwhelming for her. Um, it also gave us inadvertently a longest period of abstinence, and four and a half months, and that turned out to be, as is said in our literature, a tremendous gift. Another thing is what Roy writes in the big in the white book is definitely my experience. Um, he talks about how he would find himself getting rageful about um, really important issues in their marriage, like finding hair in the sink. And and he said when Iris he didn't say your name when his wife figured out that when he was angry about hair in the sink it meant that he was struggling with his sexual addiction. She really blew up at him and turned into a white heat herself. And uh, and I, when I first time I read that, I identified with it. and I've identified with it ever since. Um, when I'm uh, getting on my wife's case, uh, overtly or covertly, uh, it's always my disease is stirring inside me, and I'm terrified. Which is actually a, that's an appropriate reaction. Taking it out on my wife is not appropriate. Um, so the family afterwards has, has been a big deal for me. Just a couple of things that have happened that have made a difference for us. Um, one was um, we started a couples group. Uh, in fact, there's a guy who was in the group with us who's here at this conference um, in 1989, and we've gone to couples group ever since. Uh, we meet twice a month. And if it's, we're at all available, we go. And that has given us a chance to reaffirm how important uh, sobriety and recovery is in our lives. My wife doesn't actively participate in Esalon anymore, except for the couples group. And that, she's great. And if I, she doesn't remember schedules, but she doesn't remember any schedules. So she depends on me to do that. Um, we were originally going to get married on February 29th, but it was on a Tuesday. And I said, I don't want to get married on a Tuesday. And she said, if we don't get married on February 29th, I promise you I will never remember our anniversary. And it's true. She never has. Um, we, got married on the, we got married on February 29th, of course, only comes every four years. And it was so unusual that she thought she could remember it, but she's never remembered the 27th. Uh, but I'm compulsive about it, so I remind her. 
anyway, um, the couples group has been important to us, and uh, and we've sometimes sort of sustained it. Sometimes it's a big group. Right now, it happens to be big. Um, another thing that's been important to us uh, been after that episode and moving out to the West Coast. Uh, we um, one day. I realized, I've shared this before, and it, it seems so simplistic, and it's pretty accurate. I realized that every time we fought, it's because I had disagreed with something she said, or expressed an opinion on something she said. So I stopped disagreeing and stopped expressing an opinion, a negative opinion anyway, and, um, and we stopped fighting. Turns out I was right. <laughs> we did fight every time I did that. <laughs> so the, the ability to stop fighting had always been unavailable to me. Um, that was uh, about uh, 20 years ago now, or 18 years ago now. And to this day, we express amazement that we're still able to do that. We just came back from an 18-day trip together, and, and we didn't fight. We had a great time. And that included one time when I was totally panicked because my cell phone was hijacked in New Zealand uh, by, you know, electronically hijacked. I didn't have service and somebody with a totally different phone had taken over my account and stuff like that. Probably a computer, actually. But um, but we just, even with that, I just kept saying, it's not you. I'm just being weird. This is what I get when stuff like this happens. And we didn't fight. So that's made a big difference and certainly brought a lot of peace um, I'd really try to make serenity my goal, and I'd rather be serene than right has turned out to be a wonderful phrase for me, and I try to stick by it. And Roy, the last thing I'll share, and then we'll open it to questions, so get ready to come up if you're thinking of it, um, is Roy's uh, little piece, um, I Am the Key, that's on page 133 in the White Book, um, is amazingly accurate. and. Uh, it's a description of him going off with another sexaholic to complain about their wives. And, um, and Roy realizes that he is um, the key to um, their recovery together. And that he had an opportunity to treat his wife as someone else in the program rather than as someone who was annoying him. And he said as soon as he walked in the door, uh, his wife knew he had changed. <coughs> And that always, that line always, that one line is what really drew me to the story and has continued to attract me because I can identify with that. I know when someone has changed, whether it's my wife or me. And it really, and we can always see it in somebody else. We just can't see it in ourselves. And, and when I made that decision, I, you know, I realized I'm not going to fight anymore. Um, or another decision I had made earlier that no matter what happens, I'm not leaving this marriage. If you want to leave, fine. If you don't want to leave, fine. I'm not leaving. And when I make those those parts, of, I am the key, as Roy says, very accurately. And and uh, when I practice that um, and then take responsibility for it, things get better. I think that's enough for me um, trying to watch our time. We have a little over half an hour for uh, sharing. So I'll move to questions. And again, if you have a question on the Internet or here, if someone wants to start off, come on up now. Here are the guidelines for sharing at this meeting. If you would like to share, please come up ahead of your turn and make a line by, well, just get near this chair in the center. Uh, in sharing, we ask that members with five years or more of sobriety share first, then one to four years. I'll let you sort that out for yourself. If time allows, others will be invited to share, so let's focus on the solution. 
When it's your turn to share, please speak clearly so that everyone can hear you. In participation, we avoid topics that can lead to dissension or distraction. We also avoid explicit sexual descriptions and sexually abusive language. The emphasis is on honesty, recovery, and healing, how to apply the 12 steps and 12 traditions in our daily lives. No crosstalk, please. If someone feels another is getting inappropriately explicit or is focusing excessively on the problem rather than the solution, they may so signify by quietly raising their hand. Although this is an anonymous meeting, please remember that anonymity does not mean legal confidentiality. Please do not share any felony for which you have not been adjudicated, as we may be required to inform law officials to protect the injured. Please be mindful of what you share to not break your own or one another member's, another member's anonymity. Um, I think we have a question. Why don't you sure. Question from online from New Jersey, I believe, from Cindy R. What does spiritual connection look like within your family? Uh, take a crack at it? Okay. Um, <clears throat> not awesome. Uh, not, not as good as I'd like it to be, but um, my wife and I are both of the same faith, uh, which we take very seriously. Um, we for Christmas the present I got her was this. Uh, I think they're called quote prints, and if you see some of these quote prints uh, that say kind of a list of positive things like always be grateful, keep smiling in different fonts, which uh, are to me patently absurd. Like nobody does that. Um, so I hired a friend of mine who's an artist to do one for us. That was sort of our spiritual uh, kind of set of mantras for the family. And they included things like in in this house we make mistakes, make amends, laugh sometimes, cry sometimes, uh, name our feelings, forgive one another. Um, in other words, just sort of laying out, and so my kids can see it too. Um, sometimes mommy and daddy are going to get sad, uh, mad, happy. Um, we're going to have fun. We're going to have hard times. We're going to forgive one another. And then uh, at the end of the quote print, it says we trust and rely upon God, um, the God of our understanding. So um, that's one answer. Uh, just very quickly, then I'll tur let Ted ask his qu or do a share whatever he's going to do here. Um, the spiritual connection within my family, basically what uh, Justin just described, I would say, is our experience, too, with one little exception. Uh, I was raised an atheist. My wife was an atheist when we met. Um, I found after a couple of years in this program that I had to let go of my atheism, and I talk about God ad nauseum to some people, and uh, say thank you, God, a lot, and all that kind of stuff. And it's, uh, and I was able to get to that spot by deciding I had no need to know what God is or isn't. I just needed to pray and turn my will and my life over and let it go with that. That works for me very well, I might add, to put it mildly. Uh, my wife is just as much a happy atheist as she was the day we met and in the day she was I came in the program and the day she is 29 years later. And so part of our spiritual uh, connection is to respect each other. 
She doesn't understand my language sometimes. She respects it. I sometimes think she's missing a bet. She doesn't even like the word spiritual, as a matter of fact. Uh, and I respect that. And so a lot of our spiritual connection is respect, which just incidentally turns out to be the key to any successful marriage and relationship. So we actually either intentionally or by accident bumbled into the correct solution. So you're up. Okay. This is family in recovery, right? Family after. Okay. My name's Ted. I'm a sexaholic. Uh, I want to broaden the discussion a bit. Um, family means not wife. It means family. And if you'll give me about, uh, I don't know, three or four days, I'll explain in my share no, what my relationship with my brother was and how the program created a relationship for me. My brother is uh, older than I am, and we spent the better part of, I don't know, 40 years, 50 years, going at each other tooth and nail. And um, literally, we couldn't stand in the same room together. It was impossible. Family gatherings, uh, birthdays, whatever, we barely spoke. I would come home from a visit to my parents and just break the walls down in my house with anger and frustration and my addiction. And when I came into the program, there was all this talk about love and resentments and fear, and it drove me nuts. And going through therapy, my therapist told me early on, you know, we're going to have to address this. And I told him later, later, later. And finally, later became now. And we set up a meeting where I invited my brother to my therapist's office in a safe chamber to have a conversation that had to be had. And I told my brother very clearly this had nothing to do with him. This was all about me clearing up my side of the street. And I didn't want to get into a tit-for-tat on you said, I said, you said, mom said, dad's nothing. I just wanted to express what I had felt for 40 years. And I did. And he sat there very, very quietly. And when I was done, I said, you can, you know, I'm more than willing to listen to you. And he said to me things that were incredibly painful at the time. He said to me, you are the only brother God gave me. He had a reason. He said to me, I've always loved you. I always wanted to be like you. I always looked up to you, even though I'm older than you. He said, I don't know how to fix what happened, but I'm your brother. And I will always be your brother. And I sat there in that chair and I wanted to kill him. Because I didn't want to hear any of that. I wanted anger. I wanted resentment. I wanted pain. And I didn't get it. And from that day forward, since I'm in recovery, I've repeated to myself literally almost daily, he's never going to be the brother I want or I imagined that I should have had. It's just not going to be. But you know what? He's my brother. And like he said, for some reason, he's the only brother God gave me. There are seven billion people on this planet, and only one of them is my brother. So I deal with it. I call him. I talk to him. I visit him. I spend holidays with him. Do I walk out happy? 
I can't really say I do. But you know what? That's not the goal. I don't hate him anymore. I don't curse him anymore. I don't yell at him anymore. He's my brother. I'm David Sexaholic. Wow, what a sharing, and I so much appreciate it. Um, my story with my brothers isn't nearly as dramatic or powerful, mercifully, because um, that's hard on everybody. And at the same time, um, I was a tyrant. I was the oldest of five boys. And um, as we got older and, and um, live in separate parts of the country, uh, by and large, uh, we didn't stay in a lot of active contact with each other. And um, when my mother died in early 90s, um, she was had been kind of the vehicle that kept us in contact often, and, and we stopped. Um, we didn't have that anymore, and we got lazy about it a bit. But at the meantime, I had come into SA, and I had broken my anonymity with my brothers. I told them about the program. It was among the many stupid things I did. That was another one. Uh, it wasn't because I was wrong to tell them. It was my motive was wrong. I was trying to make myself feel better, and that wasn't good. Anyway, um, but over the time, we have really repaired that relationship, and we just had our first brother's family reunion this past July, and, and that was, you know, it took some intentional planning, and, I, and very much I'm the one that encouraged it. Um, the previous time we'd been together uh, was in 1998 for a, a wedding. Now, we'd had various times when four of the five of us together, but never all five. But one of the ways that works is they give me a really tough time about what a terrible older brother I was. And you know what? That's neither regretting the past nor wishing to shut the door on it. It's fine. And I, it was. I did, it was really obnoxious. And, um, and we're each, I think, I can see each of us making efforts to rectify and, and uh, clean that up. So we had, an, thank you, Ted, so much for sharing that. We had an Internet question come in. I guess you're yeah. focusing on it. Sorry. Um, yeah, this is from, um, yeah, thanks, Ted, and thanks, David, again. This is from Adrian G. from Ontario, Canada. Question. Are our children, are children affected by our illness? Sometimes year, years later, our children, in coming out of denial, have a lot of rage towards us. What's the single most important thing to remember when our children start to express their anger towards us, when they start coming out of denial as to how we have affected them by all of our isms, I guess, sexaholism, etc. So, what's the single most important thing to remember when our children start to express their anger towards us, when they start coming out of denial as to how we affected them by all of our isms? Illnesses. <laughs> well, my, my oldest is three, so I don't have a lot of experience, strength, and uh, hope in this. Uh, Want to take a crack at <coughs> I was thinking you had mentioned your occupation. That's your own fault. Um, the, um, so my kids have all raged at me at various times, and... Um, and frequently it was deserved, sometimes it was not deserved. 
Sometimes it's really throwing my wife off kilter, sometimes not. It's had been all of those responses. I, there's one daughter who actually has not raised at me, but the other three have had their turns. And you know what? They have every right to. And that's a big start. And also, they're not... Their experience was their experience, and if it was overwhelming, discouraging, humiliating, you know, scary, whatever other adjective you want, uh, that happens. And just as, you know, I was saying yesterday, when I was sharing my story, I was 15 years sober when I finally read, somebody had put it in there in the meantime, in the big book, The Fourth Step Prayer, which has actually been there since 1935, (laughs) but... But I finally read it, or 39, I guess it was when, I finally read it and, and realized how important it was. This is a sick man. This is a sick woman. This is a sick son. This is a sick daughter. How can I be helpful to him or her? God, save me from being angry. Thy will be done. And, and using the fourth step prayer, even though I was a slow learner, if I can save any of you listening some time, that's a good thing. And also using the um, 11th step prayer, which is in the 12 and 12. Lord, make me a channel of thy peace. Where there's hatred, I may bring love. Where there's wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness. I have literally had people, both family members and people I work with, raging at me. And I'm doing that prayer as close as I can, word for word in my head, over and over again, as long as they're raging and I take what they're saying seriously, and I don't have to be blown apart by it. And that's given me a lot of freedom. So those are two things that have worked for me. You're here. Did you want to add anything? Uh, no. Okay. I'm Gene T. I'm a sexaholic. And that's only by God's grace I've been sober for nine years and 14 days today. And I'm very grateful for that. Um, I love this this uh, topic of the family afterward. <clears throat> a lot has happened to me in these years of sobriety. David's been a part of that, and he doesn't know it. Of course, he recorded many things from the past that have helped me uh, in my marriage and with my family. One especially that I, I like and I've shared with others, and I do it regularly myself. He told me to... Mention to my wife, say it regularly to her, verbally say it, what's on my mind and on my heart, that I love her dearly, I'm not going anywhere, I'm not leaving this marriage, you know, uh, you're the person, you're the only one I'm looking for, I'm not looking for other persons in my life, you're it. And, uh, I love you for that. You help me a lot, and I've tried to help others with that too. That's good advice. I know it's on my mind a lot. It's on my heart dearly, but I don't say it. You said say it. Say it often and mean it. I love that. That's helped me a lot. Uh, I can relate to your anger. I grew up with it. And I brought it in with me in my marriage. And uh, that's been something I've had to seriously work on in recovery. Few numbers. Uh, I'm seven, almost 71. Uh, I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous and sober for 33 years. Um, I've been married the same wife for 48 years. We have two children. One's 45, the other's 43. Grown kids, but 
And around Christmas of 2008, they all wanted me out of the house. And my kids were grown and all, but they, they concluded and helped with my wife to kick me out of the house. And they should have. It took me about two or three years of sobriety to get to where I could thank them for that. Because mm-hmm. they saved my life. Uh, they got me into this program. And uh, I'm, very, I, I'm, I'm still doing amends with that family. Uh, my family, I will be for the rest of my life. Just last October, I had the opportunity with my son to make a, another piece of the amends when the pickup door closed and we were both in there together taking a short trip, I got to say, you know, I I was wrong for this and that and that. I did that wrong. And he listened real well and, you know, didn't say much for a while. A little, a little while later he said, well, Dad, if you're trying to apologize for being a lousy father, I can handle that. <laughs> And then he blew, he blew up on me, which I knew he would, and that's fine. You know, I was ready to listen to what he had to say. I've learned that about making amends. Uh, I can rehearse and practice my part and say it the best I can, but I better be ready to listen to what they have to say because there's a lot more pain in there than I can even imagine. So, anyway, I love sobriety today. Uh, I, too, can go on a trip with my wife like this one and many others without fights. We used to never be able to do that before recovery here. And I've been sober in AA, what, 20-some-odd years, but still we were fighting. And it was my judgmental stuff, my snapping at her words or things she did. You know, what? some things, Dave, you've given me is that, you know, it's just not important. It's just uh, Roy too. The thing you're saying, Roy, is uh, it's up to me. I've changed, and since I've changed, our marriage, our relationship with my kids, my grandkids, and that's all changing for the better. I like it. I, I didn't think I would like it. Of course, when I came here kicking and screaming, I didn't think I would be this way or like it. Being a, a a good father and grandfather or whatever but I do I'm loving sobriety and I love to share it I'm Gene Sexholic thanks thanks well thank you do you want to respond no no Uh, that was magnificent and the only thing I would add is Dr. Paul's uh, story acceptance is the answer on page 417 or 449 if you have a third edition um, that uh, for years I thought the worst thing could ever happen to me <coughs> is that I would turn out to be an alcoholic it turns out it was the best thing that ever happened to me which means that I don't know what's good for me or for you and if I don't know what's good for me or for you then it's best that I don't give advice and pretend I do know the answers and and then the, those dreadful words with which he ends that paragraph. Uh, for years I was judging myself by my intentions while the world was judging me by my actions. And and that just, I just had someone read, read that earlier today and it just really is still the issue uh, one day at a time for me. 
Um, so that was magnificent. Thank you for sharing that. I'm, I'm glad that we get to pass things on that are helpful. Are you coming up? In which case, keep coming. No, it's fine. Just keep, just keep coming. That's all. Um, are we have any more internet questions at this point? Okay, you're up. Ned Sexaholic from Seattle, uh, and I was over there because I know better than to step in any of uh, David's lines. Uh, I, I'm a, an advice-aholic, like many of us are. Uh, one technique that I've found useful is uh, when I want to give advice, I use the, the, the Jeopardy rule, uh, phrase it in the form of a question. Uh, and that's often very useful. So it took me a little while, being an advice-aholic, to come up with a question. But I, I have one um, for you both. Uh, in dealing with any member of your family, I rehearsed this. How did it go? About two inches. Oh, that's better. No, but can they hear me? Okay. Uh, Okay, here's how do you practice rigorous honesty with a family member without uh without recklessly inflicting your disease on them? I'll take a stab at that. Um is this my, is this working again? I think it's coming in Okay. Um, Menza, Menza. Repeat the question. Okay. Oh, you didn't hear it. Oh, no, we, we had a request for a repeat. But so I guess the question was basically, how do you practice rigorous honesty with family members without, without inflicting damage upon them? Disease, you, you know, your disease uh, or my disease. So... Um, if if I think an an image or a fact is going to be to do potentially more harm than good for a family member to to know about, um, I don't share that explicitly. So uh, now that being said, my we're a pretty quirky New York Italian family, so we're we're pretty honest, no matter what recovery or otherwise. So my uh, my parents and my sister know a fair amount about uh, my disease and even some some specifics. But basically, if if I feel like I'm purchasing my peace of mind at their expense, if I'm sharing gory details that really aren't helpful to me for them to know or for them to know about. And I just try and make that the the guiding principle. So like for instance that you know recently with my increasing discomfort with uh internet access at my house and um being on the late night shift, the lonely late night shift with our baby um, I didn't go into a bunch of details with my wife. I just said, I am, I am wanting to control and enjoy lust. So don't worry about the chocolate cake. Thank you so much. Can you like put a new friggin' password on here? 
And she did. And it was like a great little birthday present. So that's that. But um, I, one time we almost had a friend of my wife's stay with us for a while who was really struggling. We had an extra room. Um, and I actually had to decline that. My wife and I talked about it. Um, and she's just really attractive and dresses very suggestively. And I was not comfortable with it. And so I told my wife, I just don't think I can have her in my house prancing around for six months while she gets her life together. That's just not a healthy recipe for for me. So, Thank you. Um, two things on, on sharing that have been helpful to me. It's a great question, and I appreciate it. Um, one is that I have learned over the years that if I am conscious of the need to make a decision about something, like whether I should say something or not say something, by definition, and I really mean this literally, by definition that means I'm incompetent to make that decision. Because I realize that if I'm competent to make a decision, I just do it. I don't have to think about it. I'm not choosing right or wrong, yes or no, up or down, left or right. I just do it. So if I'm thinking, oh, I need to make a decision, this took some time to get to this place, I realize what I'm trying to do is build a case internally to come over some wall that is in my being, in my emotional, psychological being, whatever, to kind of force it over. Well, that's, this whole disease is based on that kind of forcing, and it's just more of my sexaholism in a different form. So if I'm conscious of my need to make a decision, I admit as quickly as possible, sometimes I have to struggle there for a bit, um, that I'm incompetent to make it. And all that means is I need to ask somebody else. So I may call my sponsor or someone else in the program. I might ask my wife. And so my higher, what Harvey said early on is that, David, the only thing you have to know about your higher power is it's not you. So anybody I ask will do a better job. But Judson in, in Seattle, sponsor, says to him, and Judson quotes it to this day, um, you could stop anybody at a car intersection, Judson, and they'd make a better decision about your life than you would. And and um, and that's, you know, so if I'm incompetent to make a decision, I just ask somebody else's opinion. And uh, who knows what they'll say. It just, it's not my opinion because I'm not competent. The other thing is on sharing things in general, and this is this is really been able, it's worked in all aspects of my life, and I, I repeat it often so I keep it in mind because it's easy to forgetting disease, right? And that is uh, the, the two criteria for sharing something verbally. If I can share something and my motive is love, and no matter what I'm sharing, if I can surrender the results of my sharing, then it's fine. I can share anything in the world. And I practice this, it's, it's, it's held up over time. Equally importantly, if my motive is not love, or if I can't surrender the results, and by the way, that's the most common one, um, the criteria. If I can't meet those two criteria, it's better to wait and not share at that time. So I use those criteria regularly, and and um, as I said, most often it's I can't surrender the result. I, I want an outcome, I want a response, I want a change of plan, whatever. Well, that's not surrendering results, so then I just wait. And uh, it always works out. So, uh, anybody else want to come up? Um, oh, good. Are you you going to hand us something? Here, I'll throw it to you. Uh, advice on how aggressively or patiently 
to build relationship with adult children who don't appear to want a relationship with us? That's a good question. I, again, I don't. I have limited experience, strength, and hope on that particular issue. But what do you think, David? Um, well, first of all, it's a good question, and it's really important. Secondly, in my experience, it requires um, a patience and willingness, probably in equal quantities. Um, and I've. I've had an opportunity in various situations to pass it along to other people who are at various phases of dealing with this. And I have had it with my own uh, oldest son, so it's it's kind of personal too. Not kind of, it is. And um, and sometimes it just takes a long time. Um, in the last eight months, nine months, I have had, no, maybe it's 10 months now, last 10 months, I've had more contact with my oldest son than I had in the past 30 years. Um, we have lived in Oregon since 1995. He lives 585 miles away, because that's where the grandchildren are, and he's never been to see our house. And, and it's a good chance he never will be, by the way, but nonetheless. But uh, finally, uh, we have his wife and the kids have come up a couple of times now, and hopefully that'll happen more. And we go down there frequently. Um, but I've had more contact with him in the last 10 months than previously. It's been delightful, uh, and it seems to be mutual. It's not excessive. It's not euphoric by any means. It's just a change, and a change for the better. And, and the thing that I provided was, A, I was willing to be, um, have a, the relationship change, and I was willing to have it not change. I really, whatever was comfortable for him was okay. And, and that wasn't always easy by any means, because sometimes I could get into hurt feelings very quickly if I wanted to. And then, secondly, um, I kept doing what we teach each other in this program. If you're upset with someone or concerned or feel, you know, keep praying for them. And the purpose of that, it doesn't change them. Maybe, maybe they'll change, maybe they won't. What it does mean, if they do change, I'll be able to respond to it. And that's exactly what happens. Um, I can point to an event that probably made a big difference. Um, uh, uh, an important person in, in our, both of our lives died and, and, when he took his family to the funeral, I made a significant contribution to the expenses with no request from them. I just did it. And I'm sure that helped. But you know what? Uh, I, I, had, I was able to make that contribution just because I was willing, and it seemed like a good idea. <coughs> and they accepted it, and they have responded as they've been able to respond, and that's been fine. So a lot of it is just patience and willingness. and. And to have a time frame that's a lot bigger than David's, I want it now, I want it my way, I want it now, which is my default and uh, doesn't work. We are up on time and I think we need to close. Uh, I really appreciate, did you count? Uh, I did, I'll do, I will count right now. I got it, you talk. Um, in closing, anything you've heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the person who shared it. The principles of SA are found in our 12 steps and 12 traditions. Remember, we never identify ourselves publicly with essay in the press, radio, TV, or films. 
Neither does anyone speak for SA. This is an anonymous program. Please keep the name, address, and phone number of anyone you meet to learn about an SA to yourself. The shares we've heard are told in confidence. Please do not repeat what you've heard about another member to anyone who is not actually listening somewhere on the World Wide Web. Or, that was a joke or who was not actually here at this meeting at the time it was shared. Please, what we say here, when we leave here, let it stay here. And let's, uh, let's form a circle and we'll close with a third step prayer. And for those of you who've been listening on the Internet, thank you so much for participating in this event, and we hope it's been helpful to you. you for listening to this episode of the daily reprieve the best source for experience strength and hope for sa members please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes please show your support by donating to the daily reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking donate now Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.